are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. All right, everybody, it looks like we're live here on our Thursday afternoon question and answer. I don't know why. The software is looking a little bit different. I don't quite get it. I've got some time now in front of the screen where I'm just kind of staring at things, but that's okay. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it's our Thursday question and answer time, and I'm so pleased that you could join us. Uh, as far as I can tell, everything's going out okay, and we're very happy to be live online for everybody to see. So uh, what we want to get to is our lead question to begin with. And this is how we do it on the Thursday afternoon. By the way, if we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. And I've been a pastor for almost 30 years. I was the director of a small international Bible college in Germany for seven years. And uh, right now, I give most of my attention to the work I do with an online Bible commentary that some people find helpful. You can find that Bible commentary in a lot of Bible resources that I have at EnduringWord.com. And I'm pleased to meet you if we've never met before. What we do on a Thursday afternoon is we love to welcome our TWR360 audience. Hello, TWR360. So pleased that you could join us today. It's a wonderful time for us to get together. And uh, we're very pleased with our partnership with TWR360. Trans World Radio is an outstanding ministry that's been reaching the world with the Word of God and the Gospel for more than, uh, well, decades upon decades, let me say. And TWR360 is their online ministry. So we're pleased to have a partnership where this goes out on their website as well. Uh, what we do on a Thursday afternoon is I begin with a lead question. And the lead question may be something that came in by email. It may be something that was left over from previous week. So today's lead question comes from Cameron. And it has to do with how many judgments we will face. So let me deal with Cameron's question right here. Uh, this is his question. I heard a pastor referring to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, say that there will be two judgments. Number one, do you believe in Jesus? And number two, what did you do for Jesus? Is this true? Well, Cameron, um, I understand what that pastor was getting at, but I wouldn't explain it the same way that he explained it or at least the same way that you're reporting, he explained it. Uh, here's how I would explain. I would say that there are three significant judgments described in the Bible. Number one, you have a judgment of believers for what they have done, for how they have lived. This is a judgment for heavenly reward and responsibility, uh, sometimes called the Bema Seat of Christ, based on the phrasing in the uh, Greek original found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. That's the verse that the pastor you mentioned was referencing. So that's the judgment seat of Christ, a judgment of believers for what they've done. That's the first significant judgment mentioned in the Bible. And by the way, I'm putting these in my own order. Somebody else may order these in a different way. But first I'm talking about the judgment of believers for how they have lived. Secondly, there is the judgment of the nations determining who will be allowed entrance into the millennial earth under the reign of Jesus Christ and his people. 
I believe that that's described in Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 21. Now, let me be very clear. Uh, Historically speaking, my opinion, my understanding, my explanation of that passage in Matthew chapter 25 is in the minority. Most people throughout the history of the church have believed that Matthew chapter 25 was speaking about a different judgment. But I I feel fairly confident, if I could say, I I don't mean to say that with arrogance, but I think this is just what the text says, that this is a judgment of the nations determining who will go into the millennial earth. That's the second significant judgment. The third significant judgment mentioned in the Bible is the judgment of sinners before the great white throne judgment of God. That's described in Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. So let me just read the relevant passages to you very quickly, and we'll just kind of survey these uh, three judgments quite quickly here. First of all, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 9, we read, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in their body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Uh, there, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul explains that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When believers pass from these bodies to the world beyond, we must each give account according to what we have done, whether good or bad. Now, this is not the great white throne judgment. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But this describes, again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a judgment of the works of believers. Notice the phrasing of Paul here. He describes it, the works done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. By the way, that phrase, judgment seat, that's a single word in the ancient Greek language of the New Testament. It's a bema seat. Bema literally means step, and it's just referring to a raised platform or seat. And that's where the Roman magistrate sat to act as a judge. I remember one time visiting the ancient city of Corinth, and they had the place where there there was the bema seat. That's where the judge sat, and that would have been in the mind of the Corinthians as Paul wrote to them here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, what will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, first of all, what believers have done will be judged. Paul used the phrase, the things done. But then secondly, The motives for what they have done will be judged. Paul used the phrase, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Friends, believers will face a judgment according to what they have done with their saved life. It is possible, and look, this is a little bit of a cliche, and I understand this could be understood in a wrong way, but I hope you'll understand it the way that I intend it. It's possible to have a saved soul, and a wasted life. Now, I I don't think that's true in absolute sense, because anybody who truly is saved will have some evidence of that salvation work in their life. But, But not everybody will fulfill everything that God intends for them to fulfill. And this should be an encouragement to us in our service of the Lord. We will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ 
for however we have served God faithfully as believers. But then, as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 later points out, uh, our motives for what we do will also be judged. And it's a very important passage there. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 12, Paul says this, Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, and I think that refers to the day of the judgment seat of Christ, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he is built on, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, I think here in this 1 Corinthians chapter 3 passage, Paul's talking about those who are saved. They get to heaven. They are saved, yet with nothing in terms of reward. And Paul's using this as a cautionary tale to the Corinthian believers. And so should it be so for all of us. And so uh, what we do for the Lord matters in time and space. Christian, if you're reading this, if you're a believer, you need to live a life glorifying to God. doesn't mean you need to quit your job and go away to a monastery somewhere or join a commune and remove yourself from the world. No, right now, in the things that God has put before you to do today, you can bring him glory and you should be bringing him glory. Those are the kind of things that will have reward in the age to come. So that's the first judgment, the judgment of believers not regarding salvation, not regarding uh, whether or not they go to heaven, but regarding reward in the age to come. Now, there's a second judgment that I mentioned to you, and this is the judgment of the nations. Uh, I'm going to pass over this pretty superficially, and I feel bad about that because this is an area of some controversy. What what I'm going to tell you here, uh, many people would interpret or understand the Bible differently. But I believe that the judgment described in Matthew chapter 25 is not a judgment regarding heaven and hell, though it has implications for hell, as it clearly says. But it's more so a dividing of the peoples of the earth to decide who will be allowed to enter into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, again, this gets into complicated subjects because uh, believers who take the Bible seriously have some different takes on this. But look, I'm the one on this question. This is my question and answer. So I'm going to give you my perspective on this. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 31, says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. I want you to understand what Jesus is describing here in Matthew chapter 25. It's not really a parable. It's a description of a future scene of judgment after the glorious second coming of Jesus. He just dealt with his glorious second coming in the previous verse. Matthew, or in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. And and when Jesus returns, he will sit on the throne of his glory, 
By the way, I, I would love to take the time to talk about this. Friends, if any human being says, I'm going to sit on a throne of glory and judge all the nations, then either they're crazy or they're God. And friends, Jesus Christ is God. Uh, so anyway, this particular judgment scene where it says here that all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. Friends, I understand this to mean that it is a distinct judgment from the great white throne judgment described in Revelation chapter 20. And, and these are the reasons. I believe it happens at a different time. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 clearly happens after the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ and his saints. This judgment of the nations happens immediately after the glorious return of Jesus. So it happens at a different time. It happens at a different place. The great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20 happens in heaven. The judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 25 happens on earth. I would say that it happens to different subjects. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 emphatically includes all unredeemed men and women. The judgment of the nations in Matthew 25 seems only to include the nations, that is, the Gentiles who are judged in large measure and care towards, in part, the Jewish people. That's why Jesus will go on to later describe them as my brethren. How they treated my brethren is going to be a determination of how they are regarded as either a sheep or a goats. And it happens on a different basis. As will be described later in Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goats determination is based on how they have treated the brethren of Jesus, which I would describe as a broad term, including Jesus's brethren according to the flesh, the Jewish people, and Jesus's brethren according to adoption, and that means Christians, believers, the family of God. So I'm just going to leave it there with the judgment of the nations, even though there is much, much more that can be said. Let me touch briefly now on this final judgment. Uh, first, we had the judgment of believers regarding reward. Second, we have the judgment of the, of the nations regarding entrance into the millennial kingdom. And thirdly, we have the judgment of all humanity, all unredeemed humanity. Revelation chapter 20, beginning now at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Friends, that describes what is often called the great white throne judgment. No one can hide from it, but believers, it is thought by most every Bible commentator, most every Bible teacher, if somebody disagrees, I'd like to see them make a case for this. But the simple idea is that this, it describes the judgment of those who reject Jesus Christ. And it's very interesting that I believe it's in verse 12 here of Revelation chapter 20, that it describes these people standing before God. Uh, many commentators point out 
that the standing posture means that they're about to be sentenced. Technically speaking, this isn't a trial. It's a sentencing. This isn't to determine what the facts are. The facts are in. Here is the sentencing of those already condemned. And nobody will have anything to say. The dead will be judged according to their works. If they're not listed in the book of life, then they will be cast into, as the next couple verses say, it says verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Sobering words. Uh, God eliminates the last echoes of sin, death, Hades, and all sinners. Those who have rejected God's provision, they're cast into the lake of fire. That's what we usually talk about as hell. This lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, according to Matthew chapter 25, that becomes the place for men and women who reject God's salvation and condemn themselves. So three judgments, the judgment of believers regarding reward, the judgment of the nations regarding entrance to the millennium, and then finally, the great white throne judgment where people are sentenced, those who are not found in the book of life and whose works condemn them. Let me conclude with just a couple of quick quotes here. Uh, These are taken from my commentary, one of them by a commentator named Dean Alford. I appreciated his work on Revelation. He says this, as there is a second and higher death, excuse me, as there is a second and higher life, so there is also a second and deeper death. And as after that life, there is no more death. So after that death, there is no more life. Sobering. And then one more quotation on this. Again, I I just... I think this is very eloquent. John Trapp, that old Puritan commentator, say this. The devil and the damned have punishment without pity, misery without mercy, sorrow without succor, crying without comfort, mischief without measure, torments without end, and past imagination. Friends, you could put it like this that there are only really two places of judgment, final judgment, in all the universe. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ at Calvary and the lake of fire, the destination of those who are condemned under the great white throne judgment. And there is some sense in which God leaves it to us. Oh, look, I'm not trying to deny God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign working, and God's election uh, before the foundation of the world. But as far as this is experienced by human beings, we experience it as a choice that we make. Friends, there's two places of judgment. Do you want your sins to be judged in Jesus at Calvary as a sacrifice on your behalf? Or do you say, I want to deal with my own sins and let them carry me down to the lake of fire? What a sobering thing. Well, Cameron, I hope that helps you there. 
Let me get to the questions here. Uh, now in the live chat, we're done with our lead question. Let me get now to the questions in the live chat. A question comes from Adonis. And here's the question. Assuming that Psalm 91 verse 9 in the Septuagint shows that David believed that Yahweh is two persons, why doesn't the Masoretic text show this? Why might the Dead Sea Scrolls version of that verse be missing? What is your hypothesis? Okay, Adonis, um, look, you're asking me to weigh in on things on which I am by no means an expert. I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm frankly open to correction or more information on these things. What you're saying here is that in Psalm 91 verse 9, David makes a reference to Yahweh as two persons. Now, from a Christian understanding, taking into account both the Greek scriptures and the Hebrew scriptures, Christians understand that there is one God, Yahweh, in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So God the Father is Yahweh, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is Yahweh, and God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. So so that is a very Christian idea, that Yahweh is one God in three persons. And, And what Adonis is pointing to is that the Septuagint supports that idea in Psalm 91, verse 9, but the Masoretic text does not show this. Well, Adonis, to my understanding, and again, I'm no expert on this, but to my understanding, the Masoretic text comes from the Middle Ages. comes from a time when Judaism was trying to refute Christianity and trying to refute doctrines such as the Trinity. So it wouldn't be a surprise if something was in the Masoretic text that was, if I could use the phrase, less Trinitarian, because there was some motive on the part of the Jewish translators of the Masoretic text or the Jewish compilers of the Masoretic text to express it that way. I would just say that that's the most clear uh, reason there. And and so when you would compare the two of them, um, that's why. Now, if you would say, why are these verses missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think that's a little more speculative in nature Um, because the Dead Sea Scrolls would have, for the main part, predated uh, Christianity. Uh, Boy, I'd have to do a little more research on that because I know the Qumran community existed into Christian times. So it could have been written, excluded either as a refutation or for some other reason. Maybe they thought it was confusing. But, but that's the basic idea. I've, I've, I'm more confident in understanding why that would be different in the Masoretic text, which comes from medieval Judaism, to my memory, I may be incorrect on that, uh, more than the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I, I hope that helps, Adonis, and thank you for that question. Uh, but it is fascinating that it would be more emphatic that the Trinitarian nature of this would be more evident in the Septuagint which was done hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, about 200 years before the time of Jesus Christ. Right, thank you for that question, Madonna. Let me go on to the next question from George, who asks, Pastor Guzik, 
If we don't believe in speaking in tongues and healing by touching, are we committing the unpardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? George, no. Let, let me just be very emphatic on that. The, the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and I'm sure that if you search on our website, you can find more about it. But friends, if you go to EnduringWord.com, uh, you will see a search function there. Let me see if I can find this here. Um, okay, uh, EnduringWord.com. I'm going to show this to everybody on the screen here. Cut over. Uh, there's EnduringWord.com. And if you can see right here on the far left side, there's a little search bar. I'm going to click on that right now, and it gives a search. And if you were to type in there, um, let me see if I could do this. Uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Let's see what comes up when we put that in. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 56 search results. So I would believe that in those particular uh pages on the website would be places where I spoke of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So uh, that's one thing to say, but let, let me just say that that's for your deeper research. George, let me just explain this. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the hardened, persistent rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus is. The primary function of the Holy Spirit is to point men to Jesus Christ. That's not the only function. The gifts of the Holy Spirit at work, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work. It's not the only function, but one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus Christ to people. And when people reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit repeatedly, permanently, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's the sin that won't be forgiven of. So, George, no, it's not the rejection of speaking in tongues or healing by the laying on of hands, but rather it's the hardened, persistent rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness regarding Jesus Christ. And again, I would just recommend you go back to uh, the Enduring Word website. If you want to see more what I have to say about that, just use that very handy search function on the Enduring Word website. And you can find out what I have to say about a lot of different subjects and might be helpful in answering your questions. Thank you for that question there, George. Next question comes from Leo, who says, If the demon-polluted gene pool was destroyed by the flood, why do we read in Exodus of a race of people that were giants? Thank you for speaking at the Calvary Oxnard Men's Conference. Well, Leo, it was a pleasure what a great day we had. And uh, I'm assuming that if you go to the Calvary Chapel of Oxnard website, you can find those uh, messages. We had a wonderful uh, men's conference uh, with my great friends and members of the Enduring Word Board. Lance Ralston, uh, Miles DeBenedictus, Chuck Musselwhite, all getting together uh, for a men's conference. But uh, Leo, your question again, I'll read it again just so everybody's fresh on it. If the demonic polluted gene pool was destroyed by the flood, why do we read an exodus of a race of people that were giants? Okay, Leo, I'll give you my answer to this. Listen, your mileage may vary. Uh, maybe other people have other answers for this, but I'll give you my answer for this. I don't believe that there was a genetic connection 
between the giants, so to speak, before the flood and the giants, so to speak, after the flood. I think that there were large men who were called giants, uh, but there's not a genetic connection between the two. It's just they're using the terminology of the old world to refer to people in the post-flood world. Um, you, you can imagine uh, a, uh, a basketball team full of average-sized people like myself, you know, average to being short, uh, just uh, and then and then facing a basketball team full of people uh, who were six nine, six ten, six eleven to transit two meters tall. You, you you see people that and you, you could see the smaller basketball team saying to the larger, they're giants. Now they don't mean that they're literally giants, but they're just very large men, basketball players, and they're saying in a relative sense. That's how I would describe the likeness, not being a genetic likeness, but that there was just a tribe, a, a, a group of people, of people there in Canaan who were large people. And we know this genetically. Look, some people are taller than other people. You, you go to the Netherlands. Man, there's some tall people. Some of the Dutch people are tall. You go to Sweden, man, there's some tall people there. I think the people in the Netherlands are taller than the people in Sweden. Uh, you, you go to certain African tribes, man, those people are tall. There, there's just some genetic differences uh, when it gets into different things of size and body shape and proportion and all the rest. There, there was a tribe of large, fearsome men in Canaan. And though there was not a genetic connection there was obviously a symbolic connection and they called them giants. That's the answer I would give to that question, Leo. Again, I don't know if somebody has another answer or a better answer, but that's the answer I would give to you. Okay, next question. Um, oh, having to do with the lead topic, Tyrone asks, Pastor Guzik, in regard to the judgment, can a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ lose their salvation and have their name blotted out from the Lamb's book of life? Uh, okay, Tyrone, I I'm going to answer this question exactly the way that you've asked it to me. And if somebody's there in the live chat, they can see it just the way that Tyrone has asked it. Here's the way Tyrone asks this question. A true born-again believer in Jesus Christ can they lose their salvation and have their name blotted out from the Lamb's Book of Life? Tyrone, in just the way you answer that question, I would say no. But but here's what I would say. An apparent born-again believer in Jesus Christ can lose their apparent salvation and have their name blotted out from the Lamb's Book of Life. That's why nobody should live in the arrogance of saying, hey man, I prayed a prayer, I'm good. Uh, I walked an aisle at a crusade or an evangelistic event. So I'm good. Uh, at a camp, they ask for invitations to receive Jesus Christ. And I threw my pine cone in the fire. I'm good. Nobody should live under that kind of deception. So an apparent believer can lose their salvation and end up on the wrong side of eternity. But if somebody is truly born again, evidence of their being born again is that they will endure to the end. 
I don't like the phrasing once saved, always saved. I don't like that phrasing. I don't think it's biblical. Uh, and because one reason, there's several reasons why, but one reason is, is all we can do is talk about appearances. Uh, all, all we can do is look at people's lives from the outside and say, look, as sure as I can tell, that person sure looks as if they're a believer, a genuine believer. Yet nevertheless, it's going to have to depend on how things work out and if they persevere in their life. So, um, Tyrone, you said a true born-again believer. And Tyrone, here's one of the many reasons why I, I have... I don't know how some of these things are undone. If somebody is truly born again and truly has a new nature, the old man is dead, they have a new nature imparted to them to Jesus Christ, how does that get reversed? Does Jesus withdraw his nature from that person? Uh, does the old man come back into their life? Is the old man resurrected? How does a person get unadopted as a son or daughter of God? Is it, th those are things I, I just can't get my head around. But I think that question that Tyrone asks so often gets asked just on the sake of appearances. And friends, we need to be diligent and look at our lives and... Um, we, we should live diligent to believe that we need to press into God's kingdom. All right, here's another question relevant to the lead topic. Mr. Big Guy asked this question. So can a Christian be blotted out of the book of life? I was taught that we can lose our salvation. I'm so confused. Okay, Mr. Big Guy, I hope that my answer to Tyrone's question was helpful for you. Um, look, again... Uh, if somebody's truly born again, instead of saying this, instead of saying once saved, always saved, how about saying this, truly saved, always saved. And so the truthfulness of our salvation is simply evident as we live out our Christian life and as we persist in our faith. So th that's the best way I would explain it. I hope that's helpful for you, Mr. Big Guy and Tyrone, and thank you for your questions. Uh, here's another one on the lead topic. Robert K. asks this one. So anyone with a deathbed salvation gets no reward. Okay, Robert, great question. The person with a deathbed salvation. Now, I, I want you to know, folks, I believe in the phenomenon of the deathbed salvation. I, I believe that there are people who are saved on their deathbed I've seen glorious examples of this. And so I believe it's possible for a person who has rejected Jesus Christ their entire life shortly before their death, maybe even moments before their death, to repent of their sins, put their trust in Jesus Christ, and receive eternal life. I believe that's possible. And they would get to go to the same heaven that someone who has faithfully served Jesus Christ for 70 years gets to go to. Now, you may say, well, that's not fair. Listen, fair isn't the issue here. Uh, it's the glory of God's grace being demonstrated in that person's life. Okay, so I believe that's true. But, Robert, I think you're, you're accurate that that person should have a low expectation, if I could say, use that phrase, a low expectation of reward. Um, look, let's be honest. 
They haven't lived their life for Jesus Christ. And so it's a beautiful blessing that they get to go to the same heaven that everybody else gets to go for. They are citizens of the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord for that. But um, they just don't have much reward in heaven. And so I think that's fair enough. I, I like what some old commentary, I don't know who it was. Adam Clark, John Trapp, Matthew Poole. I don't know. I, I read a lot of old guys. Sometimes I can't remember which old guy said this and which old guy said that. But uh, I remember reading one who said this. He said, there's one deathbed conversion in the Bible. And that one deathbed conversion in the Bible that he's speaking about is the thief on the cross. Friends, if you want an example of a deathbed conversion, that is it. The thief on the cross. He said, there's one deathbed conversion so that everybody would know that it's possible. Then he said this, but there's only one deathbed conversion so that nobody would presume on waiting for the last minute. Friends, deathbed conversion, I think it's real, but it's rare. And I just imagine that there's somebody viewing this, listening to this, and you're putting off getting your life right with Jesus Christ. You're putting off trusting in Jesus. You're trusting, you're putting off trusting in who Jesus is, God the Son and the Son of God. You're putting off trusting who Jesus is and what he did for you, especially what he did for you at the cross and in his resurrection. You're putting off repenting and trusting in Jesus because you're thinking, I can do it later. Man, I could do it on my deathbed. Dear friend, dear sir or ma'am, let me say to you pointedly, you're a fool for doing that. Because I'll admit, it is possible. And if you find yourself on your deathbed and you have not yet called out in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, you must do it then, at that moment. It's very possible that that could happen. But you have no idea how you're going to pass from this life to the next. Isn't it possible that your life could be snatched from you in a moment and you wouldn't even have a deathbed? If, God forbid, uh, your life was taken in an automobile accident or by a sudden uh, heart attack or stroke and there is no deathbed, how crazy would it be for you to presume on a deathbed conversion? No, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Your heart is never going to be more warm towards God than it is right now. Or at least you can't presume on it being more warm towards God than it is right now. Today is the day to repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. In who he is, according to the Bible, this right here, and what he has done for you. Especially what he did at the cross and the empty tomb. That's what you need to do. And don't delay. Don't presume on a deathbed conversion. There is one in the Bible so that everybody knows it's possible, but there's only one so that nobody would presume upon waiting for one. All right, let me go to the next questions here in the side chat forwarded to me by our moderator. If you'll pardon me, I'm going to take a drink of water first. I get a little excited. My voice gets a little strained. 
Next question comes from Matt, who asks, Pastor, I want to reach out to my unbeliever friends with the good news of salvation, but I don't know how to do it naturally without preaching in normal daily life. Any insight? God bless you. All right, Matt, I'm going to give you something to do. Um, all right. Uh, keep your eyes open to the Enduring Word website. I'm just taking a look at the website right now. Because in a fairly soon time, we're going to be offering an evangelistic tract written by my good friend Rick Soto. And I think this is a good tract. So uh, again, keep your eyes open for that. We're not ready to release it just yet, but maybe in the next couple of weeks, I don't know, keep your eyes open for that. But, but Matt, let me give you something to do in the meantime. Look for ways to speak with your unbelieving friends about your life with God. Isn't it crazy that sometimes, somehow, we as Christians kind of get the feeling that that's off limits, that we're not allowed almost to speak to our yet-to-believe friends. That's sometimes how I prefer to speak to them. They're not unbelievers, they're yet-to-believe. But sometimes we get the feeling that we can't speak to our yet-to-believer friends about what God's doing in our life. And so don't be shy at all about telling them things like this. I know it's going to feel awkward at first just because it's so unfamiliar, but don't be shy at all about saying to your unbeliever friends, man, uh, you, you know, Monday morning, let's say at work, I, I don't know if these are work friends or whatever, but you could say Monday morning at work, say, man, the pastor just gave the most amazing message yesterday. He was speaking from the book of Galatians and oh, did that really hit me in my mind. And just talk about it naturally. You could talk about spiritual things with your yet-to-believing friends as you would with your believing friends. And if you'll just speak to them as if they were believers, sharing that part of your life with them, I think you'll be surprised how they express their own spiritual interest and want to talk about spiritual things. So, Look for the tract that we're going to be putting out. Jesus at the Center is the name of the tract. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that. Again, we'll get notice on the website in several weeks. And when we do, believe me, I'll talk about it here on the Q&A. But uh, in the meantime, Matt, just look for ways. And again, I understand probably in the beginning, it's going to feel very awkward when you do this. That's okay. Work through the awkwardness, but just get to the place where you can speak freely about spiritual things. Say, hey, you'll never believe what happened. I prayed for this and God answered that prayer. And just tell your yet to believing friends about that. Believe me, it'll quicken something in them. It'll quicken some interest. So that's a suggestion for you there, Matt. Okay, let me take the next question here from Shailene. Shailine? Uh, Shailene, I'm going to say, uh, forgive me, please, if I'm mispronouncing your name. Last week, you advised me to do a comprehensive study on Romans 5 through 8. Right now, I'm following your commentary on the book of Romans. Can you recommend any books to go along with your commentary? Uh, okay. Um, 
Shaylin, I'm going to recommend to you a book. Excuse me while I reach over and grab this book here. Pardon me. This is an old book. You might have to search uh, for online used bookstores to find it. And you probably won't be able to find it in this edition. But man, this is a great book. Romans verse by verse. What a tremendous commentary on the book of Romans this is by William Newell. Matter of fact, I wrote a book on grace. Uh, a book on grace. Well, maybe it's not behind me. Maybe I need to do a better job of promoting my own books. Uh, I wrote a book on grace called Standing in Grace. And in the appendix to that book, I lifted a whole section from Romans verse by verse uh, because it was an amazing section. So, Shailene, this is the one I would really recommend to you, especially William Newell's treatment of Romans chapters uh, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Now, again, if you want something that's more academic, uh, let me recommend this one to you. Excuse, pardon my reach here. Boy, um, Leon Morris is one of my absolutely favorite New Testament commentators. This is going to be also very good, uh, more academic. Uh, this is more uh, written for everyday people, and uh, but, but deals with the text deeply. So I'd recommend this one first, uh, but more academic. Man, I love me some Leon Morris. I think he's an outstanding New Testament commentator. So uh, those are my two recommend recommendations for you there, Shaylin. And I'm happy these were right within reach that I could reach and show you and everybody else these books. Okay, um, Arnold asks this question. Blessings, Pastor David. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, Jesus sat at the right hand of God. Is this literal or figurative? Does God have a physical as well as a spiritual form in heaven? Okay, um, Arnold, let me say, uh, I'm going to describe this as literal. Because whether or not we would say God the Father has a bodily, or some people use a corporeal, corporeal, let's just say bodily, whether or not we would say that God the Father has a bodily presence in heaven, I would lean towards him not. This is what we do know pretty conclusively from what the Bible says about heaven. There's a throne there. As for what exactly is on that throne, I don't know if we can describe with any kind of, uh, you know, precision. It very, very well be beyond our understanding. But if there's a throne, then that gives some physical dimension to it. And to the right of that throne, no matter what the presence is of that being that's on the throne, God the Father, no matter what the, the, the nature is of that being, physical, spiritual emanations of light, we don't really know. There is a throne in heaven. And to the right of that throne, that's where Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is seated. So that's the way I would describe it, Arnold. Um, I wouldn't focus so much on a bodily presence of God the Father, because I think that's problematic in a lot of ways. 
you know, you can make some cases back and forth for different things, but just to get beyond that, uh, beyond emphasizing a bodily presence of God the Father, we can focus on the throne. If you take a look at Revelation chapters 4 and 5, look at how central the throne of God is to the vision that John had of his heavenly experience of seeing the throne room of God. So uh, I would emphasize the throne and say, if we're talking about spatial dimension, then that's where Jesus is, to the right hand of that throne. The right hand indicating the hand of skill and strength, the hand of favor uh, in that respect. Hope that's helpful for you there, Arnold. Susan asked this question. Hi, Pastor David. Please further explain the statement, redeemed man is greater than innocent man. Well, Susan, that's a phrase I love to use because to me, it explains a lot. It, it brings a lot of light in on what God is doing through the centuries. Susan, we normally think of the pinnacle of God's creation being innocent man in Eden. But I believe, and I believe it very strongly, that redeemed man is greater than innocent man. That what we gain, and we, I mean people like you and I, people today, uh, people since the fall, what we gain in Jesus is greater than what we lost in Adam. Humanity lost something in Adam. We lost our innocence, we lost a sinless nature. Uh, we, we lost those things. We lost uh, a relationship with God that was unhindered by sin. We lost things in our, uh, as being identified with our fall with Adam. But what we gain in Jesus is even greater. We're born again by God's Spirit. We're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. God regards us as his inheritance. We are adopted sons and daughters. We are kings and priests with Jesus Christ. We shall reign with him forever and ever. All of these things are beyond what God ever said would belong to humanity simply or would belong to Adam in his unfallen state. So I don't know if that explains it well enough for you, but if you look at the glorious blessings of the believer, I'll give you another one. In Ephesians, it says that the believers are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, co-laborers with Jesus Christ. None of these things were said or declared regarding Adam, but they are ours in Jesus Christ. And that's why I can say that we gain more in Jesus than we lost in Adam. That redeemed man is greater than innocent man. That God's purpose in his plan of the ages is not merely to restore us to the level of Adam in the garden, that innocent, unfallen state, but to take us beyond that to who we are in Jesus Christ. Hope that's helpful for you, Susan. All right. Looks like we've come upon it. Whew, the lightning round. 
Better take another drink of water before we hit this. Thank you, moderator, for this lightning round. I'm going to get at it right now. Jesse asks, Hey, Pastor, in the destruction of Sodom, did Lot's wife go to heaven? Asking for my son Josiah, who asked me this morning after reading together. Okay, Jesse, let, let's just say the text doesn't specifically tell us one way or another, but my inclination would be to say no. And the reason why I say that is remember that Jesus used Lot's wife as an illustration of unfaithfulness, as something that the people of God should definitely avoid. And for that reason, I would say I would lean towards her not going to heaven, though I can't say certainly, but how Jesus referred to Lot's wife in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's Matthew and not Luke, uh, causes me to uh, go on the side where I would suspect that he did, she did not make it to heaven. Thank you for your question, Jesse. Next one comes from Jesse, wait, Jesse Rivera and Jesse Jonas. All right, Jesse and Jesse. Pastor David, do you believe that the coming persecution will put a stop to the puffed up preaching we see today? Paul said he counted all as dung. Why so many boasting of doctorates and not of Christ? Well, Jesse, yes, I do. I believe the coming persecution, uh, if there should be coming persecution, and uh, I, I would certainly suspect that there is, that one of the benefits of such persecution is that it weeds out nominal believers, uh, uncommitted believers. Friends, right now there's a lot of um, agonizing, hand-wringing in the church over those who are leaving the churches today, over those who are, in, in some circles, sometimes the word deconstruction is thrown out there. And look, I get it. We say we want as many people to go to heaven. We want as many people to be active, participating members in God's family as possible. Yes, we want that, and I get that. Praise the Lord. But friends, in the big picture, it's not a bad thing for nominal, compromised, lightly committed believers to turn their back on the church. Now, I, I would wish that they would stay in the church so that um, the preaching of the word might continue to impact them, so that being around the people of God might continue to have an influence. I, I would wish that. So if you ask me what I would wish, I would wish that they would stay in the church. But I can't deny that there's some purifying benefit to the church for the lightly committed, the uncommitted, the nominal, to leave. Je Jesus did this a few times in his ministry. And uh, if one of the results of Christianity becoming less popular, more opposed in the culture, friends, the culture, by and large, is set against Christians, thinks so terribly of Christians, that we just can't deny it. Um, let, let me use a cultural reference. And I, I apologize especially to our listeners or viewers outside the United States. I know this is the lightning round. I'm supposed to move through these a little more quickly, but I'll, I'll, I'll get to this. 
I want you to think of the United States television series, The Office. Uh, not so much the BBC one, because they didn't have, to my memory, this analogous character. In the very popular television series uh, in the United States, The Office, which ran for many seasons and was very popular. Uh, in The Office, there was one identifiable Christian character in the show. And it was a sour, hateful, mean woman named Angela. And if you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. Angela was the one identifiable Christian in the program. And not only was she sour and hateful and mean and bitter and a very unpleasant person, not only was that all about her as the character in the sitcom, but she was also a hypocrite because she was uh, sleeping with another character in the thing. And, and that's what she cared about. Friends, that is what the world thinks of Christians. It just is. And you can say, well, we deserve it. We don't deserve it. That's another discussion. But there's no doubt that that's what the world thinks of Christians. And a world that thinks that of Christians won't mind persecuting them. And so if that makes the church smaller, yet more committed, uh, there's there's some benefit to that. I'll just put it that way. Thank you for that question, Jesse. Let me go to the next one. Modern Entrepreneurs says, Hello, Pastor David. Question, how do we deal with church splits and how do we help others through them? Okay, great. Thank you, moderator, for sharing the link for a specific Q&A video on that. Uh, but Modern Entrepreneurs, this is difficult. Um, first of all, I think that in a church split, you really got to keep your integrity. To, to the best of your ability, don't talk bad about other people. Take the high road. Take the high road as much as you can. And don't be pragmatic, thinking whatever works must be good. No, as much as you are able to, take the high road through a season of a church split. And um, ask how you can love other people. Look, there are times when it's necessary and good for churches to split, to divide. But even when that happens, it should be done with as much integrity and love and a lack of acrimony and hatred among people as possible. So th that's just some of the things I, I would pass on to you, modern entrepreneurs. And, and I'll try to remember to pray for you in the situation you're encountering with that. All right, next few questions. Lynn asks, do we need to repent for every sin? What, Lynn? Every sin that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind. And by the way, it's a, every uh, sin that the Holy Spirit brings to your mind. Some people have an overactive conscience. There's not many of those people today. But some people have an overactive conscience. But if the Holy Spirit impresses it on your heart that you need to confess, and then do it and do it right away. Lynn, it's impossible for us to confess every sin. Um, every day when we wake up, innumerable ways, both by what we do and what we fail to do, we sin and we fall short of the glory of God. And it's impossible for us to confess every sin that we commit. 
If our going to heaven depended upon us specifically confessing every sin that we ever committed, then every one of us would go to hell because it's impossible to do. But the Holy Spirit will call attention in our life to sins that are hindering fellowship, sins that must be dealt with for the cause of God's kingdom, for our fellowship with God. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us as believers, we should be quick. We should be very prompt in our confession of sin. Next question comes from Tony. Um, if Jesus didn't lay down his life willingly since he was sinless, would he have lived on earth forever? Tony, I would just say, yes. Why not? Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. Uh, I must lay it down. And in theory, because of course we're just speaking hypothetically, if Jesus did not lay down his life, he would have lived forever, just as Adam did. Sinless Adam lives forever. Sinless Jesus lives forever. Uh, but he laid his life down as a sacrifice, as a substitute for our sin, for the sins of his people, and we praise the Lord for it. Uh, Jesse again asks, uh, Pastor David, is it correct to say that those before Christ were only supposed to pray when they would go to the temple? Yet Hagar prayed, and she was able to call to God El Roy, the God who sees. Your thoughts, please. Okay, well, Jesse, first of all, please remember, Hagar prayed before there was a temple, before there was a tabernacle. Hagar prayed 400 years before there was a uh, a tabernacle, and just roughly speaking, 800 years before there was a temple. So no, Jesse, there was never a command that people should only pray at the temple. There was promise that there would be special efficacy when people prayed at the temple. Uh, but no, there was never a command that people should only pray at the temple. Where there was a command later under the Old Covenant was that people should only sacrifice at the altar, either at the tabernacle or at the temple. So, Jesse, there was never a command that people should only pray um, at the temple. So, hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Shell asks, maybe you've already answered this question, but were Je what were Jesus' last words? Um, I, I believe you're, you're saying Luke 23, 46, or John 19, 30. It is finished, or Father, into my hands, I commit my, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Uh, Shell, I would say that the last words of Jesus were, uh, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I, I picture Jesus saying, um, it is finished, to die, paid in full, and then saying, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's what I would say would be the last words of Jesus, what he said there in Luke 23, 46. I don't know if that could be uh, determined absolutely, but that's how I would see it. So I hope that's helpful for your show. What a great show. Thank you, folks. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense as if this is just a show, but I'm very pleased that we can get together. And please, if your question did not get answered, first of all, try to join us early next week. The earlier you join the program, the better chance you have of our moderator seeing and organizing a question to pass it on to me. But second, please know that we do uh, take note of the questions that we didn't get to, and we often address those in lead questions later on. But so pleased that you could join us today. Uh, God willing, and if I live, I will be with you next Thursday. What a wonderful time that will be, I anticipate. And so I hope you can join me next Thursday uh, for our next live Q&A. 
so pleased that you could join us. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.